understanding how the world works. Science is a bit human for knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way. Seeing through them also. So thanks everyone for coming to the March installment of Here with CMSIS which is the uh, podcast, the monthly podcast that features the philosophies, research, ideas of the uh, members of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. And so today we have uh, Seth Baum is going to give us a talk titled The Fate of the Universe and You, which um, obviously sounds very relevant to pretty much all of us. Uh, but first, the, uh, Julia Demarenes is going to kick things off with a beverage introduction. All right, thanks, Jacob. Um, so I was giving this task of introducing a beverage a lot of thought. I'm not a huge drinker by any means, and I'm gluten intolerant, so I can't drink beer. So that kind of puts me in a weird position. And usually when I go out, I get tonics, which is kind of boring. So I live in Colorado, and Colorado has the most microbreweries per capita in the United States. And I thought it might be cool to even go more micro than that. Um, one of my climbing and running buddies, his name is Tim Plummer, he brewed a gluten-free beer just for me and my stomach issues. And I kind of wanted to share that with you guys. Uh, he didn't have a, a name for it. So I came up with uh, the universe in a bottle, and I'll send you my awesome uh, label that I just made this morning. Um, and he uses buckwheat and millet grains, and he brews it all himself, and it takes about, it's a two-week process, so I thought that was pretty cool. Um, so that's the drink, and I really enjoy gluten-free beers, if you ever have a chance to taste one. They're, they're pretty good, they're not the real thing, but for those sensitive, they're a good alternative, and I'm going to crack mine open and have it with some lime. And if I can find that kid. And of course, I should uh, mention while Julie's doing that that you should abide by your local laws and respect the drinking age in your uh, place of residence. Alright, so um, you guys should all join me in toasting to uh, this meeting with Seth Baum. And I'll, I'll really quickly introduce him, so cheers. And I'm going to enjoy a nice sip of gluten free beer. Oh, yeah. So, real quickly, to introduce um, Seth, he he studied math and French as an undergrad at the University of Rochester, and then I'm pretty sure he heard this song. And decided to switch to electronic, uh, electrical engineering for his master's. And then perhaps decided that he needed to get more global. And is currently a PhD candidate at Penn State University in geography. And he studies uh, global catastrophic risks. And there are risks uh, of events that could significantly harm or destroy human civilization at the global scale. And prominent global catastrophes. Catastrophic risks include climate change, nuclear warfare, pandemics, and artificial 
generation, uh, general intelligence as described by Seth. So now I'll let Seth Baum talk about, uh, give his talk. And thanks for hearing me out on the free beer. And cheers, everyone. Thanks, Julia. Yeah, I really wish uh, people would play music every time they introduce, introduce me. That would that would just make things that much better. Uh, so, yeah, and, I, and I'm really curious to uh, see what this uh, universe in a bottle uh, gluten-free beer tastes like. It, it, it sounds pretty good. Uh, for this talk, we will be uh, uh, diving into the the uh, bottle full of universe. And so I hope you guys have your beer gills on so you can breathe just fine inside. And uh, uh, Okay, so um, I'll start out with some uh, biographical details. Julia said, said a, bit, a bit about that already, uh, basically how I got uh, from the land of engineering to where I'm at now. And then spend most of the time on uh, research topics that tie all of this together, especially those that are related to uh, topics in astrobiology and the life of the universe and, and so on. And then I'll close with uh, some uh, organizational stuff uh, related to some ongoing projects of mine that uh, might be of interest to you guys. Um, so yeah, uh, I started out really in the, the engineering path. When my dad was an engineer, my mom's dad was an engineer. That was always the, the default for me. Um, but I uh, had kind of a double life. I was, you know, an engineer by day, or an, at least an engineering student by day, uh, but uh, by by night was always involved in other, other sorts of projects, mostly like uh, uh, do-gooder stuff. Actually, an undergrad, uh, Sean, uh, who, at the, who was then known as Sean Goldman, now Sean Domical Goldman, also part of the Marvel space, he and I uh, did a lot of this stuff together, community service activities, things like that. Um, and I always wanted to merge these two worlds, the, the engineering stuff and the, the do-gooder stuff, and I really struggled to find a, a way to do that. I would try going up to my colleagues in engineering and, you know, trying to get them thinking about questions like, so, uh, you know, what would be the best engineering design projects for us to pursue? What, what topics would we be looking at? Uh, what would be the most helpful for society? And you know, they were really nice people. They would, you know, have a conversation, and then they'd be like, okay, that's great, now get back to work. Um, and after a while, I didn't really like that so much. I kind of wanted this to, to be part of my work. And I I found geography. I actually uh, stumbled into geography by accident. I was... Uh, a prospective student at the Geosciences and Meteorology Department at Penn State. Uh, Sean was actually in, in the Geoscience Department at Penn, so, so he, uh, he helped out with that too. And I was talking with folks in uh, the Geoscience Department, talking about the things I was interested in doing. They were like, that sounds great. Have you talked to the Geography Department? And so I went over there, and the rest is history. Uh, with Geography, I've had the chance to keep one leg in the natural science and engineering stuff and, and also have one leg in uh, ethics and, and social science and policy and all that. And it's been a really, really great experience for me. Actually, just uh, just this past weekend, I was at the big annual geography conference. 
not quite as big as the ACU's meeting, but it's still like 8,000 people or so. And it's really eclectic. It's, it's a lot of fun. If you love just like uh, a really eclectic mix of academic topics, then it's, it's hard to do much better than this. When I went to sessions on climate change and natural hazards and then also on communications and education and then on uh, media and celebrities and art and then sessions on religion and uh, and policy and, and even a session on how to design maps, like which color schemes to use. It's a really eclectic uh, uh, group of topics, but uh, for me it's a lot of fun. And so I'm just just currently finishing up a PhD degree in geography at Penn State. I uh, submitted my dissertation uh, committee signatures to the department now, so it's basically all done. I just don't have the degree yet, so I guess technically you can't quite call me doctor yet, uh, but that'll come soon enough. Um, and so that's, that's uh, the uh, outline of my story. And uh, for the rest of the talk, I'm going to share the uh, intellectual ideas that have been kind of my uh, guiding framework over the years, the ideas that uh, I've been working on with Blue Marble Space, with the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute that is uh, part of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science, and some other ongoing projects I have. Um, and for me, this all starts out with questions of ethics, and ethics is in simple terms, a uh, study of what uh, is good and bad, or right and wrong, or uh, what we should and shouldn't do, things like that, things like that. And so if you're someone who cares about what we should be doing, then it helps to have uh, at least some study of ethics, not necessarily, you know, spending your whole life studying ethics, because then you never get to actually do the things that you were trying to figure out about. Um, but for me, it's been been really helpful to dive into at least some of the, the research on ethics. Um, in the the ethics terms and, and ethics jargon, the um, frameworks that I mostly work with are called consequentialist. Uh, consequentialism is uh, basically the idea that uh, we should do those actions that have the best consequences. It's basically the idea that we should make the world a better place. Um, and this is contrasted with, with other forms of ethics that would, say, judge some actions as being right or wrong, regardless of what their consequences are. Uh, and in U.S. Uh, politics, this actually came up in the last few years in debates about the role of uh, torture in for example, um, is it okay to torture a terrorist if that would stop a major uh, terrorist attack? Uh, it's a really difficult question and got a lot of different factors going on. Um, but in terms of consequentialism versus other types of ethics, uh, consequentialism would say that if, uh, if the, the torture would indeed have good enough consequences like preventing a lot of people from dying or something like that, then it is okay. Um, and, and so then within consequentialism, I mostly work with a, a specific uh, type of view called utilitarianism, which says the good consequences are 
uh, defined in terms of utility, which uh, can mean several different things, but uh, mostly would mean something like uh, happiness or welfare or quality of life or something like that. Um, and these are, you know, these are my own particular views, but it's also uh, uh, views that are shared widely uh, across lots of different ethicists and, and other researchers and, and thinkers on this stuff. Um, but a, a key question is, and this is this is what my PhD research has been on, has been on the question of whether we should uh, value everyone or everything uh, equally across space and time. Um, so is is my life or my happiness or, or whatever worth any more than yours or somebody else's? You know, somebody else's halfway around the world or. Uh, generations into the future, or something like that. Uh, this is called discounting, um, which comes from economics literature, actually. And, and discounting usually is the idea that we should um, uh, we should value things differently that happen at different points in time. Uh, so, for example, if you could get uh, $10,000 in five years, how much is that worth to you now? Presumably less than $10,000, but how much less? That's a question of discounting. And my dissertation work's been on discounting across space as well as time, which is the idea that um, we might value things, whether it's money or, or people's lives or, or whatever it might be differently across uh, space in addition to across time. Um, and, and I'll briefly note that um, we can also talk about valuing things like life itself or ecosystems, even if it's not directly related to anything human. So uh, the, the core ethical uh, values here need not be strictly tied to humans, which is especially important once we start thinking about uh, values that are not on this planet. Um, but if we're valuing things equally across space and time, whether it's humans or life or whatever it might be, then this includes spaces and times beyond that of this planet. And so if you want to figure out how to uh, act so as to have the best consequences, how to uh, make, now, now we're talking about not just making the world a better place, but making the, the solar system or the galaxy or the universe or, or maybe even beyond if there is anything out there beyond, um, beyond this universe. To make any of that a better place, um, have to think about value beyond this, uh, this planet in both space and in time. And if you have the handout that I typed up, um, the handout has a very crude, simple uh, diagram at the top showing value across uh, space and time. I drew a couple squiggles on top of that graph, and I'll explain what those mean in a second. But for now, uh, just note that we're looking at uh, several major, uh, major points in, in both space and time uh, on this graph. And uh, this is very much not to scale, so you have to uh, Keep that in mind as you're looking at this. I'll explain what the turbulence means in a second. Uh, the Earth end part, looking across it in time, uh, is in roughly one billion years, 
uh, Earth becomes uninhabitable to life as we know it. The sun gets too warm and too large, and uh, and basically life um, life as we know it can no longer continue to exist. We might be able to stretch that out a little bit by doing some sort of geoengineering, blocking some of the light coming in from the sun that might buy us some extra time, but it's still on the order of a billion years or, or something like that. Uh, the rest of the universe, on the other hand, will be inhabitable for much, much longer. First, uh, first the galaxy and then beyond our, our galaxy, if we're able to make it beyond this planet and, and become able to survive elsewhere in the, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe. Uh, the fate of the universe, in that sense, is much less well understood than the fate of Earth. Um, so we don't have one simple mechanism like the, the evolution of stars that we can point to for the universe ending. Uh, in, the, in the chart, it says maybe 10 to the 32 years. That number comes from uh, some research on proton decay. Potentially, it would be hard for life to exist without protons. Um, but this is, uh, at least as far as I can tell, a much more um, open-ended and, and unresolved area of research, and uh, an important one, too. So if anybody in the audience uh, knows about this particular research and can help fill in some of the details, that would be, that would be pretty helpful for, for this. In the vertical axis, the units are basically values, and I'm doing this in very fuzzy terms, not specifying whether it's humans or life or whatever. Uh, the bottom line is the, the zero line, where it's basically nothing that we value, which is, you know, if it's human life, it's the value of a life that doesn't exist, or the value after the person dies, if it's life in general, then it's you know, when there is no life and so on. Uh, next line up is the value of life on Earth, whether it's humans or whatever that we value. And then that top line, the astronomically awesome line, is the much, much larger amount of value that we would have at any given point in time if uh, the, the galaxy, the universe, is filled with value. And if we control the universe instead of just the galaxy, then you get much, much more than we can get in the galaxy. But either way, it's, it's quite a lot more than what we have here on Earth. And so if we want to make the universe a better place, and if we really do value things equally across space and time, then the bulk of the opportunity is not here on this planet. It's uh, beyond this planet, the rest of the galaxy, and the rest of the universe, uh, and even beyond um, in both space and time. So for whatever it is that we value, whether it's happiness or human life or life in general or so, the important part is to get whatever it is that we value off this planet and spread broadly across the, the rest of the universe. And that's, that's basically what we should be doing. I like to talk about our civilization, uh, our human civilization, today is being at the beginning of a grand journey throughout the universe and uh, you know, spreading, spreading awesomeness throughout the universe. And it, you know, it's, it's a, a small world after all. 
but it's a really big galaxy and universe. And um, uh, so if we can if we can get all the awesome stuff that's currently on Earth and get that out into the rest of the universe, then that would be um, that would be at least from uh, these particular uh, ethical frameworks. That would be the most important thing we can do. Now, as far as us alive now, today, our our generation, our era of civilization, we don't necessarily need to be focused on immediately trying to colonize space. And the reason for that is because, well, um, we still have about a billion years or so left on this planet, which at the rate we're going, should be plenty of time to colonize space, as long as nothing really bad happens first. Uh, and those bad things are the uh, the major global catastrophes, the things that could wipe our civilization out, such as it, such that it never gets back on its feet, never has a chance to excuse me to achieve great things in the universe. And so, uh, for for us, for our era of civilization, uh, I would say the most important thing that we can work on is helping prevent those global catastrophes from happening so that future generations, future eras of civilization can go on to colonize space and achieve great things in the universe. And so um, that's what I'm focusing on uh, with, uh, with my research and with my other activities. Um, so I'll say a little bit about that. Uh, first, with regard to the global catastrophic risks themselves, when you have some from uh, the natural environment, like asteroids or meteors or even uh, supervolcano eruptions, in general, those are fairly unlikely. Um, in any given time, it's, uh, it's unlikely that that large of an asteroid or, or volcano eruption would come that it would wipe our civilization out. Um, we could also add to this list uh, alien invasion, as uh, those in, in the Blue Marble Space Group who've been working on uh, risk from alien uh, risk from aliens recently know it's it's really difficult to say just how big of a risk alien invasion is. But uh, personally, I would say that it's not the most pressing priority. Uh, instead, I would say the biggest priorities are things like climate change or biodiversity loss, nuclear warfare, uh, pandemics, uh, things that we face a pretty high risk of in the next you know, decades and centuries, things that you know, we even could see in our lives. And certainly we're already seeing some climate change and biodiversity loss in, in our lifetimes, and that is you know, on track to only get worse. Um, and, you know, it's an open question about exactly how much worse it could get. Um, other, tech, uh, excuse me, other risks that are worth mentioning are those from uh, emerging technologies, things that don't currently exist but could, and if they do come into existence, could be very disruptive. Uh, the one I'm most familiar with is artificial intelligence, which is basically the computers start outsmarting us. Not just that you know they can already outsmart us at, at like addition, um, and, and that's fine. They've been able to do that for a very long time. Uh, they're 
now they can outsmart us at chess and, and most recently Jeopardy. Um, but those computers aren't going to take over the world and destroy us. Uh, the computers that might uh, do that are those with what's called artificial general intelligence, which is intelligence across the uh, broad range of, of reasoning and thinking. So humans have general intelligence. You know, we can do Jeopardy, but we can also do a whole bunch of other things. And so in that sense, we have a, a general intelligence. And if uh, we build computers with that same sort of general intelligence and can then start improving that, well, we can improve intelligence in computers much more rapidly than we can in humans. And uh, there's the idea out there that this, uh, this intelligence would just start um, uh, basically just leave us in the dust. And if it's designed right, it might start solving a lot of our problems, including some of those other big risks. And if it's not designed right, then uh, we might not exist anymore. And so, so that's on, on the list of things that are um, uh, of concern, the, the sorts of global catastrophes that are of concern. Um, in terms of response options, I'll just mention a, a few. There, there are several different things we can do about this. One is colonizing space. So we don't have to colonize space now because uh, we still have a couple, you know, we, we might have a billion or so years to do it. But if we do colonize space now, then that provides us some insurance against really bad things that can happen on Earth. So if we have a self-sufficient space colony, and there's a major pandemic on Earth, for example, then, uh, uh, then the space colony can continue to exist and can help maybe even rebuild things on Earth, potentially. Also, uh, space colonies are really difficult. Uh, something that would be a simpler option would be uh, refuges on Earth, uh, underground bunkers. And these already exist for like, continuity of government things like that, but potentially there should be more of those to help out in case there's a major catastrophe on Earth. Um, other things we can do, basic environmental protection, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, um, you know, reducing deforestation, things like that, very helpful. Uh, also, international diplomacy for things like uh, nuclear warfare or for um, you know, coordinating if there's a disease outbreak things like that, or for, for climate policy. And so I'll note that the, uh, the One Five in Space project that the Blue Marble Space has, I think, is a, a great step towards uh, achieving the sort of international diplomacy that can be, uh, can be helpful. I think it's important that international diplomacy need not just be from uh, uh, diplomats, government diplomats, that, that we all can, uh, can be involved in this. And so I think it's great that the um, Mobile Space is helping out with this. Over the years, it's certainly been the case that uh, scientific communities have uh, gone together across borders. Even you know, the United States and the Soviet Union have um, had scientific relations over the years, and, and um, I think that's, that's really helpful. Um, in this context, I'll, I'll note that as far as how to actually understand the full breadth of risks that we face and, and the full breadth of, of options for how to respond to the risks, 
and other issues that come up. This is a really complex set of topics. I and mean, I work mainly in climate change, and climate change itself, which is just one risk, has uh, people from a bunch of different fields, from climatology to communications and policy and all that. And when you start bringing in all these other risks and so on, it just gets more and more complicated. And so moving down to the second graphic and the handout, um, I like to talk about transdisciplinarity. And you know, I'm certainly not the only person talking about this, which is basically... Yeah. Yes, just to interrupt you real quick, the uh, handout uh, for our listeners is available on uh, bmsis.org slash podcast. Sorry about that. Thank you. Sure thing. Thank you. Um, so uh, the idea of transdisciplinarity is kind of like interdisciplinarity, which is the more common term. Interdisciplinarity is about integrating across all the different disciplines, and transdisciplinarity is about transcending the disciplines, basically uh, acting as if the disciplines weren't even there, and so just forgetting the whole concept of discipline and doing the research. Uh, for whatever uh, seems to be most helpful, most relevant. And that's really uh, how I like to do it because that's when we can really get to the most important parts of whatever challenges we face. Um, but that on its own is not enough. And uh, this is something that I've been uh, starting to talk about a lot more, which is the idea of transprofessionalism, which is that, uh, that middle section of the graphic which, you know, we can have transdisciplinarity, but research on its own is not enough for us to rise to the challenges of global catastrophic risk or, or to, to other challenges that we face. We need uh, research, we need communications to get the insights from the research out there, uh, we need people in business and government and, and industry and so on and so forth all working together to uh, take the best ideas for how to rise to these sorts of challenges and put them in a place. Um, in that, down at the bottom there, it says citizen behavior in italics. Uh, I, I put that in italics because that's not exactly professional activity if it's just people acting as private citizens, but I think that people acting as, as citizens really has uh, an important role to play in a lot of this, so I think it's really important to engage the public in, in various ways. Um, and so as researchers, we're trained in specific areas of research, and to at least an extent, we're, we're trained in communication. You know, we're, a lot of us are involved in education, teaching classes, or uh, giving presentations of one sort or another, and, and I think that's great. But there are other ways of um, presenting ideas, some of which uh, I at least feel like I uh, am not so well trained at. Uh, for example, most recently I've been doing a lot of collaborations with artists uh, working on environmental change topics, and they bring a very different way of, of communicating and, and engaging and inspiring people than, than what I personally have been trained to do as a, a researcher. And so I think those sorts of collaborations have a really important role to play. Uh, and so the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute that uh, I'm leading along with uh, Tony Barrett, who hopefully we can get to give one of these talks uh, sometime soon. Uh, the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute is really designed with these, uh, these concepts of uh, transdisciplinarity and transprofessionalism in mind in that 
uh, we're really trying to engage people, not just across disciplines, but across professions, to have uh, a conversation that uh, studies big topics and global catastrophic risks, such as, you know, what are the biggest risks, what are the most effective ways of reducing the risk, but then uh, puts the research in conversation with people from other professions, whether it's government or, or, or business or, or entertainment and art and so on, in ways that really uh, bring the research to life and put it in a good position where we can actually uh, do something about the risks that we face. And so um, that's my uh, my main ongoing project. And uh, uh, with any luck, I'll I'll get to uh, continue working that with uh, with the mobile space and and in general. And so I'll uh, I'll end the talk there and look forward to any uh, questions or comments that you guys have on this. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Seth. That was that was really great. Um, I'll just ask a little quick question and then open it up to everyone else. Um, and you touched on this, but uh, space exploration and, and a lot of things that we're interested in is blue marble space and associated people looking for extrasolar planets, staging stars, galaxies. Uh, sometimes people have a hard time justifying these things in the face of, of present day, you know, problems with cancer and hunger and, and other energy problems. And I don't mean to, you know, get into that too much, but on your value diagram, um, there's at least one justification for space exploration today and astronomy today in the sense that it's an investment in value in the future, um, which is mm -hmm. maybe something that everybody doesn't think about. We, we're always looking for returns today on studying this stellar cluster, but, but in reality there's maybe some sort of investment value in that. Yeah. Uh, so first, it occurs to me that I forgot to explain that turbulence ends line in the the chart. So I'll, I'll briefly explain that then, then respond to your point there. Um, that we're facing big uh, big risks like the the nuclear warfare and climate change and so on over upcoming decades and centuries or so. Uh, and so I I like to think of this as being kind of a, a turbulent period of civilization. And hopefully it won't knock us out entirely, which is that red line on the on the graph. Uh, hopefully we'll stay intact and uh, eventually follow that purple curve up towards the um, uh, the astronomically awesome section, uh, or if nothing else, follow the green curve, which is us staying on Earth and then dying out as the Earth ends. Um, and I think if we can make it past this uh, turbulent era of the next couple of decades or centuries or so, and really get uh, get our, these global catastrophes in check, then uh, we'll we'll be sitting pretty for a very long time. So that's what that part of the graph is. Um, in response to your point, I think, I mean, to, to me personally, the the research on on SETI and, and space colonization and all that stuff. One of the biggest things that it offers for us is uh, a chance to appreciate uh, how we fit into the much, much grander scheme of things. Uh, yes, we do face a lot of you know day to day and year to year challenges, and you know, we we shouldn't dismiss those as being unimportant. But there's a much bigger story going on here, and I think it's it's 
maybe too easy for us to uh, get caught up in the um, more day-to-day things. And so the, the research and, and you know, public scholarship and all that on, on these sorts of uh, much bigger, even beyond Earth scales, is, is really helpful for that and helping us recognize how we do fit into the, the much grander scheme of things. Cool, Seth, I have a, a question regarding uh, the, the comment you made about we don't really need to explore space for another billion years because, you know, Earth will still be present then. But there's a, there's a risk of overpopulation, right? I mean, we're currently draining the resources of Earth in a way that's not, it's not going to last a billion years. So okay. perhaps it's even more pressing for us to, to get the technology to avoid destroying the planet by draining all its resources, right? Yeah, uh, this is this is a very interesting idea. Uh, potentially, we have a relatively narrow window of opportunity for uh, colonizing space that certain crucial resources might uh, might be available now, but not for much longer. Maybe it's the fossil fuels. Maybe it's um, I don't know certain metals or, or something like that. And that if we don't do it now, we might never actually be able to. Um, maybe. I hope not. And the the best thing I can say there is that um, I, I try imagining another couple hundred million years of uh, science and technology research and development. Try imagine, given how fast our our, technolo- our science and technology has been changing over the last couple, say, decades, uh, give us another few hundred million years. I, I'd like to think that there are breakthroughs, including breakthroughs that we aren't at all thinking about right now, that would let us um, that would let us colonize space at, at some point in the future, uh, as long as we have that future. Um, that's not to say that we should have zero effort to try colonizing space right now. Uh, I think, first of all, it's useful as an insurance mechanism uh, against bad things happening on this planet. Um, not necessarily the most cost-effective one, but it still is one. Um, second, it helps us uh, you know, maintain our, our focus on expanding out into the rest of the galaxy and the universe, which is, I think, really important. Uh, I mean, it would be uh, awkward if we if we get uh, get distracted and just never never end up colonizing space. It's uh, something that I think uh, Jacob touched on in his Planetary Messengers book. Um, and uh, but but that said, it I, unless it really is the case that we'll lose the capacity to colonize space later. I wouldn't make a massive space colonization project the, the top priority right now, given the, the other threats that we face. Can I ask a, a follow-up question then on that? You, um, mm-hmm. you, you brought up the, the idea that, to me, it kind of, I haven't thought about things in these terms all that much. You brought up the interesting um, concept of discounting uh, earlier in your talk, but then you didn't really follow up on it too much. Mm-hmm. It, it does seem to me... I mean, although it's obviously fun, and, and but it gives them a bit esoteric to be worried 
about the, you know, what's going to happen in a hundred million years, you know, whereas sort of that, you know, I wonder, again, to sort of compound both your, both your axes of value and space, right? I mean, from the perspective of, of us and in our current time, is not that sort of first window, um, you know, the first chunk of your box there, the most important to us because of this discounting factor, and therefore, you know, ideas that we can do that would push us more towards the purple, like possibly colonization of space, uh, as Sanjay brought up, um, more worthwhile than, than 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 not because of this concept of discounting. I'm asking that as an open question because I don't understand all the all the terms. Sure. Sure. And and discounting is a, a really kind of subtle and and complex topic. Uh, and there are a bunch of different reasons that we might discount that we might care about things less in uh, in the future, often in different places. And so it's important to distinguish between different reasons for for discounting. One is just because we we care about people or life or whatever more or less uh, based on you know who they are, where they, where or when they live. This would be saying that say human life is uh, fundamentally worth less if it happens to exist a year from now or ten years from now or, or a million years from now or however long. Not because of what the life is, but just just because of the fact that it it exists so much further into the future, or however much further into the future. Um, and so the other, uh, or, or likewise, saying that a human life is worth less because it happens to exist in another city or another country or another planet or something like that. Uh, I personally have a very difficult time with that. It's I, I can't come up with any good reasons why the same, uh, and otherwise the same human life should be worth different, uh, something different because it just happens to live in a different place or a different time. So that's one reason. Um, another reason is related to what we're capable of doing ourselves, and that might be what you're uh, something that you're touching on in, in the question there, and that's the. Okay, maybe on some level we care about everyone equally across all of space and all of time, including you know hundreds of millions or billions of years into the future. But on a day-to-day basis, uh, we can't affect things for those people, at least not in the same way that we can affect things for the people that we see on a day-to-day basis, you know, including the, the people here on this call. And I can't respond to their questions like I can respond to your questions, for example. Um, and so the question then is, what can we do that actually does make a difference for uh, a people or life or whatever that exists across these broad scales of space and time? And the simple answer to that is uh, reducing the risk of global catastrophe and moving towards uh, colonizing space and, and spreading whatever it is we value uh, into the, the the galaxy and so on. And these are things that we as individuals alive today really can make a difference on and do affect things uh, across these broad scales. And the stakes of our actions literally are astronomical. Um, and so while 
as far as uh, I think we should focus on for our you know our day to day activities the uh, the big risks that we currently face. We should do that, keeping in mind the the astronomical implications of these of these risks. Uh, hopefully, that answers your question at least a bit. Well, do we have any more questions for Seth? We're about at the right time. If there's no more questions, well, thanks a lot, Seth. That was really great. I, I learned a lot. I think we had a good discussion. Thank you. Tune in again next month, everyone, for uh, the next installment of uh, Beer with BMSIS. Until then, I'll see you next time. private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.